Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna and the host of Heart to Heart with Anna. This is the fifth episode of season 12. Our theme this season is organ donation and transplantation. I'm very excited for today's show, which features Daryl Wallace, an amazing survivor. Today's show is entitled Multiple Organ Transplant Due to Gastrointestinal Pseudo-Obstruction. In the first segment, we'll talk to Daryl about what gastrointestinal pseudo-obstruction is and what it has meant to him. The second segment will involve talking to Daryl about his transplant experience, and in the third segment, we'll discuss why advocacy and awareness of organ donation are so important to Daryl. Daryl Wallace is a 32-year-old pharmacist in Toronto, Canada. Because of a genetic mutation called MYH11, Daryl was born with a constellation of problems with his gastrointestinal tract. When Daryl was 20, he received a quadruple organ transplant, which included his stomach, small and large intestines, liver, and pancreas. Additionally, doctors removed his spleen. Daryl is now the father of a son who has also been diagnosed with the same genetic mutation. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Daryl. Hi, Anna. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm happy that your mom told me about you and put us in touch with one another. So let's get started. First of all, can you tell me what gastrointestinal pseudo-obstruction has meant in your life? Sure. So like you said, I was born with a condition called gastrointestinal pseudo-obstruction which essentially meant that my stomach did not absorb nutrients and my intestines couldn't process the food that I ate. And as a result, around the age of one, I stopped growing and started showing signs of significant malnutrition. So my abdomen was very distended, I couldn't keep any solid foods down, and I basically stopped growing. Wow, that's really scary. Your poor mother. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it was really frightening for her because at the time there wasn't really anything like this, there weren't many reported cases, so it was all very new and very scary for both her and my siblings, who were just a couple of years older than I would have been at that point. Now, did your siblings also go through this? No, none of the other members of my family have anything similar to what I have, um, sort of a new mutation in me, so I'm the only member of my family affected. Wow. Okay. So you have two older siblings? I have three older sisters, actually. Three older sisters. Okay, so Mm -hmm. three other little mothers, and then you come along, the only boy, and your poor mom is trying to figure out what is going wrong. You stopped growing. So what happened? So we were originally from Sarnia, so the closest big medical center was Toronto. The doctors in Sarnia didn't really have any idea what was going on. They basically said you need to go somewhere where the doctors might be able to help. 
And they couldn't really figure out exactly what was wrong, but the only solution they could come up with at that point was to stop me from taking in all food by mouth and just feed me by intravenous foods. So oh, essentially wow. over. So it wasn't even a G tube would it work? It had to be intravenous. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, because my stomach wasn't absorbing any nutrients, it wasn't like they could just put it into the stomach, had to bypass the whole GI tract. Wow. Oh my gosh. And how many years ago was this? Well, it was when I was a year old, so about 30, 30 years ago. Wow. Okay. So this was probably something that was really out of the ordinary, even for those doctors to deal with. Exactly. Okay. And so the doctors basically said, we don't really know what's wrong. We don't really know how to fix it. The only hope really is was just to go on TPN, which was the IV foods, until the advances in medicine would allow for a transplant of so many organs at once. Wow. So they knew that it was going to require multiple organs to be transplanted in order to be successful? Exactly, because the stomach wasn't working and the intestines weren't working. So they couldn't just replace the stomach. They couldn't just replace the intestines. And because they couldn't do the G-tube feeds, there wasn't a whole lot they could do aside from those IV feeds. Now, you said you had IV feeds. Did that mean that they put like a port in you or something like that? Or were you constantly hooked up to some machine? They put in a central venous line, which is kind of like a pick line, if you know what that is, that goes in the arm, except it goes directly into the large, basically, vena cava right around the heart. So, and it stays there permanently. And I just had, it takes about 14 to 16 hours to do the infusion of the food overnight. So that would happen overnight, every night. And I would be unhooked during the day to go to school and, and work and whatnot. Wow. So you started at one year of age. And how long did you have to have this food done this way? That was all the way up until the transplant, which happened when I was 20 years old. So about 20 years old. Wow. Now, did that prevent you from being able to do things that other normal little boys do? I shouldn't say normal because you're normal. You just have this feeding issue. But children who don't have this feeding issue do? Like having overnight sleepovers with other friends? Right. So yes and no. Like I guess I had a relatively normal upbringing. My spleen was sort of chronically enlarged, so my parents never let me play sports like hockey that might have a higher risk, but I did play baseball while I was growing up. And as far as sleepovers go, had them at our house where we had all the infusion supplies, but it was not something that I could ever go to a friend's house overnight, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, this sounds like a major life-changing experience, except for you, since you had it since you were a year. This was just your normal. Exactly. It was unusual, but for me, it all seemed, I guess, relatively normal. My parents, of course, did the best they could to try to expose me to you know multiple different environments. So we went camping in Algonquin Park, which is a large park in Ontario, once or twice, and we Instead of using an IV infusion pump, we would use a gravity method to do the feeds overnight. Oh, wow. Uh, and then we did manage to travel overseas a couple times to France and England. But that, as I'm sure you can imagine, it required a lot of preparation both here and abroad to make sure that everything was going smoothly. Okay. Wow. You said you had three older siblings and you had all of your feeds intravenously at night. 
What happened during mealtimes, like breakfast and lunch and dinner? Did you sit down with everybody? It depended. So my parents sometimes obviously would encourage me to come down with the family, even if I wasn't eating, just because the whole family was there and it was a time to talk and go over your day, just like with every other family. But there would be some days where I, you know, I had already seen enough of my sisters. I didn't didn't need to, to see them anymore. So I would just, you know, stay upstairs and read or study or that kind of thing. So they did try to encourage as much, uh, I guess, bonding as mealtime can often be a, an opportunity for that. But it was never something that I was actively participating in the eating portion, we'll say. Well, and then I guess the next question I have as a person who studied speech pathology in college I would imagine that when you finally did get the transplants and then you started to put food in your mouth, did that seem strange to you? Yes, I suppose. Like it was more just, I guess, the fact that I had to eat three, four, five times a day. Even to this day, I still struggle to eat enough to fuel my body. When you're not used to eating, it is a rather time-consuming activity, or yeah. it can be anyway. Yeah. So, you know, it took me a while to get used to forks and knives and spoons and, you know, everything like that. But at this point, I've had almost 12 years of practice, so I'm getting a little better. At eating, I <laughs> I'm sure you're just fine. Does having this mutation necessarily mean that you definitely will develop the gastrointestinal pseudo-obstruction? Or does it just mean that you have a marker? So I guess what I'm worried about is your son. Since you said that it looks like he has the marker, does this necessarily mean that he will definitely get the same disease? Right. So it's a good question that I don't really have a precise answer to. I have had some genetic testing done, which came up with this mutation. There are only a handful of reported cases of people with this mutation showing symptoms of, we'll say, gastrointestinal-like symptoms. Most of the mutations in this gene cause aortic issues, so aortic dissections and rather severe symptoms like that. Yeah, that's really scary. Only five or six cases of gastrointestinal pseudoobstruction caused by this genetic mutation. And I actually only have a mutation in one of the genes, whereas everybody has two copies of every gene. So I'm so far the only reported case of one genetic mutation causing gastrointestinal symptoms. Wow. So it's hard to say whether it will down the line affect my son. He has shown similar symptoms to what I did when I was younger, but he is continuing to grow. He's just about two years old now, still growing but he did have some pretty significant abdominal distension at around a year and a half. And he's still, I guess, struggling with absorption of some foods. But he started on a couple of new medications, changed his formula, and that's caused you know some pretty significant weight gain lately. So we're pretty hopeful for the future. Well, that sounds very promising. And it seems like you're kind of helping to write the history books here, Daryl. Yeah, it's, I guess, not something you hope to have to do but if you can provide something that people can look to and say hey somebody's been through this before there are positive outcomes then that can be helpful texas heart institute were offering us a mechanical heart and he said no dad i've had enough give it to someone who's worthy my father promised me a golden dress to twirl it he held my hand and asked me where i wanted to go Whatever strife or conflict that we experienced in our long career together was always healed by humor. 
Heart to Heart with Michael. Please join us every Thursday at noon Eastern as we talk with people from around the world who have experienced those most difficult moments. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. So, Daryl, before the break, we were talking about your condition, gastrointestinal pseudo-obstruction, and you told me that when you were 20, you got your transplant. So, first of all, how many hospitals in Canada actually operate on people with your condition? So, I did a bit of research before the show because I didn't actually know the answer definitively to this question. But at this point, there's still only two hospitals in all of Canada that do multi-organ transplants. There's the Toronto General Hospital in Toronto and the University of Alberta Hospital in Alberta. So there's a couple dozen hospitals in Canada that do various organ transplants, so be it kidneys or livers or lungs. But those are actually the only two sites in Canada that do these multi-organ transplants. And when you had yours 12 years ago, was there only one site that was doing it? I don't actually know whether the University of Alberta was at that point doing these multi-organ transplants, but I happened to be going to school at the University of Toronto, which was a bonus because my doctors were there and the hospital was there. So it actually worked out pretty well. That does work out well. Well, how long did you have to wait for your organs? You had it when you were 20. Were you actually waiting that 19 years? Well, I wasn't actually on the transplant list until about a year before I got the organs. My health had slowly been deteriorating for maybe about a year prior to getting on the list. Mm -hmm. But until that point, I wasn't what you would consider sick enough to get onto the transplant list because the risk from the surgery was just too high to to warrant. Yeah. I mean, multiple organs like they're talking about, that must be tremendous risk for infection and for all kinds of problems with rejection. Did all of the organs have to come from the same donor? I don't think it was, strictly speaking, you know, a medical requirement that they come from one donor, but I would imagine it would have been incredibly difficult to coordinate getting different organs from different donors all at the same time. Yeah. And if they had tried to spread it out doing multiple surgeries over several months, for example, that would have been probably just too impractical. And like you said, the risk of infection would have been dramatically increased. Right, right. So I'm assuming all of your organs did come from one donor then. Exactly. So they basically took out his whole stomach and intestinal tract and took it out of him, put it into me, and they had to take out my spleen just because there was not physically enough room to make all of his organs fit, presumably because he was a little bit larger. Wow. And you said that your spleen had been distended for quite a while anyway. Was there a problem with your spleen? There wasn't any specific problem with it that I know of. I don't know if it was just maybe overworked because of the IV feeds. That's kind of what caused, we'll say, the rapid decline in my health was the TPN feeding overnight is all processed through the liver. So it puts a lot more stress on the liver. So I was mostly at risk of imminent liver failure, which is why I needed the transplant more urgently. And theoretically, they could have done just a liver transplant, but that wouldn't have cured the underlying issue. So they wanted to do everything all at once. That's just amazing that they knew you would have to have so many of the organs that all of those organs became available. It sounds like within a year. Yes. Yeah. About a year after going on the list. Mm -hmm. 
Wow. So if you hadn't received the transplants, what would that have meant for your quality of life? Well, at the time of the transplant, like I said, I was getting, I guess you'd say sicker and sicker and sort of nearing what you'd see in you know somebody who has either cirrhosis or hepatitis C where they're extremely jaundiced and I have very low energy and was basically tired all the time. So without the transplant, 100%, I would have died. Uh, and I was on... Like I was on TPN overnight, 14 hours every night, but I was still going to school up until the day before my surgery. How could you do that, Daryl? I know when I was a student in school, I worked and went to school and I didn't have 14 hours to stay still and do something. Could you study while you were doing the TPN? Yeah, so it it wasn't painful or anything like that. I could be in my room at my desk, hooked up to the TPN, getting that infusion, and then studying at the same time. It did kind of limit whether I would be able to work during university, but I had enough studies to get through that I didn't really have time to work while I was at school. So it worked out okay. It basically forced me to be in my room studying for larger portions of the day. And you said that you were really fatigued, which is one of the ways they knew that things were deteriorating. You were able to go to classes like you needed to? Yeah, I was in my first year of pharmacy school at the time of my transplant. I had done two years of undergrad, so I had done some of the prerequisites for the pharmacy program. So it meant that I only had eight classes as opposed to the 10 that some of the other students had. So give me a little bit of a break. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know my son had surgery when he was 17. And you think that if a person has surgery when they're that young, that they'll bounce back from it. But it actually took him a whole year before he recovered. And he didn't even have a transplant. He just had a revision to his Fontan and a couple other procedures. How long did it take you to fully recover from such a massive transplant? Well, the transplant was in November, and I was in the hospital for two months after the initial transplant. I got out just before my birthday in January. And then I had to go back for about another month because of some complications. But I started school or restarted school, I guess, in the following September. So just about, I guess, 10 months before I went back to school. And how did you feel? Did you feel like you had a lot more energy because now you had these new organs and they were working better? I guess I felt better for sure, like 100% better. It wasn't as good as I am today, I did still have an ostomy. And at that point, when I first went back to school, I was still getting tube feeds because I hadn't fully started eating by mouth. I did have a G-tube, so that still kind of limited what I could do. But within a year, they took out the G-tube, took out the ostomy. And then I was, after that, basically making significant progress towards, we'll call it a, a quote, normal life. So it, you know, it took a little while, but uh, I got there in the end. Yeah, well, it's pretty amazing. Okay, so for those of us who don't know what an ostomy is, I think I know what it is, but I'm not 100% sure. So would you yes. tell us what so, an ostomy is? so because of the surgery they did, they replaced all of my intestines, and they basically needed to give them a chance to, we'll say, integrate into my body and get used to that new environment before forcing all of this food through them. So what they do is they detach, just in my case, it was from the small intestine, and basically make a port in the abdomen. And so the stool comes out there as opposed to having to go through the entire intestinal tract. And that just gives the body a chance to adjust to those new organs 
before being forced uh, with all that extra work. Wow. Okay. So I was wrong in what I was thinking in ostomias. So I'm glad you explained that. <laughs> there are different types of ostomias. Okay. So there's basically dependent on where in the intestinal tract that they detach. Okay. And so it took a while for your body. I can imagine look, this has got to be like a major trauma to the body to have all those organs taken out and your spleen and then all of a sudden have a whole bunch of other organs put in. Now, you said before you went in, you were jaundiced. <laughs> as soon as you had the new organs, did the jaundice go away? Yeah. Within about two weeks, my skin was back to a perfectly normal color, which I guess at that point it hadn't been for probably a year and a half, two years I'd been pretty jaundiced. So that was the most immediate change that you could notice. It sounds like it was really unbelievably life-changing for you, though, because now all of a sudden you could process things differently than before you had the surgery. Is that right? Exactly. So I could start eating meals normally. I could go out during the day. I could go out at night. I wasn't limited in terms of where I could go and what I could do. Whereas before, with the DPN overnight, it very much limited where I could physically go and what I could do. So this gave me basically a whole new world of freedom. Home Tonight Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. Daryl, before the break, you were telling us about how this transplantation of multiple organs totally changed your life. It's really amazing to me, everything that you went through and actually how quickly you recovered, because I wouldn't expect you to be able to go back to school, especially something as rigorous as pharmacy school in less than a year. I just commend you. That's just amazing. Tell us, <laughs> yeah, wow. I just, I really am amazed, Daryl. Tell us why sharing your story is so important to you. Well, I've always been, I guess, a little introverted, generally a shy person. I wouldn't say that I was embarrassed as such, but I think mostly kept my condition to myself because I thought people might treat me differently or feel sorry for me. And I kind of feel like most people have their own problems to deal with and don't really need anyone else to look after, so to speak. But lately, working as a pharmacist has made me realize how much people like to share their stories and how much comfort you can give a patient when you can say to them, look, I've been where you are. 
I've been there, it gets better, and you can basically kind of help them through. So by sharing my story with more people, I'm hoping that, A, it will show people that things do get better, things can improve, there's always hope, and ideally, by sharing it, I would like people to be more likely to be organ donors as well. Um, The reality is that thousands of people die every year waiting for a transplant. And even those who maybe don't die have a severely reduced quality of life while they're waiting for a transplant. So Mm -hmm. if we can increase the amount of organ donors we have, that would impact hundreds and thousands of people. Absolutely, because it doesn't just affect the individual himself, as I'm sure you know, but your parents were affected. I'm sure your sisters were affected. I don't think you were married by then, were you? No, not yet. Right. But for people who are married, their spouse, their children, I mean, there's a ripple effect, wouldn't you say? For sure. Like you said, it's not just the person waiting for the transplant that is, that is affected. It's everyone in their circle, from their family to their friends to yeah to everybody, really. Right. And then, especially for you, you were in school, so I'm sure your professors, since you were in college, and when you're employed... And then all of a sudden, your employer can be affected. So there definitely is a long-lasting effect and a far-reaching effect. So I commend you for letting other people know and also stressing the importance of organ donation. I've devoted a whole season to organ donation, transplantation. I think it is extremely important for people to know. And I don't think enough people are talking about it. Mm -hmm. So tell us about your advocacy efforts and what you hope to accomplish. Well, like you said, I try to talk to as many people now in my day-to-day basis about the importance of organ donation. And I'd like to thank you again for having me on to share my story, because it's platforms like this that allow me to reach a much larger audience than before, because certainly I can talk to my patients at work, I can talk to my friends, but to be on a podcast that goes out to thousands of people, and then they talk to their friends and they talk to their family, just helps the impact grow exponentially. Right. And also, since we'll be on iTunes and YouTube, Stitcher, Spreaker, Blog Talk Radio, the great thing is that if there's somebody in, say, the Netherlands or Israel or Africa, and they have this condition, which you wouldn't normally come in contact with those people, they can search on the internet, put in these terms that seem pretty unusual, the gastrointestinal pseudo-obstruction. I imagine if most people type that in, all they might get is journal articles. And so it'll be exciting when my awesome webmaster, Brenda, puts that title in, and it'll be on our website, as well as all the other places that I just mentioned. It'll give people hope all over the world. As long as they have a computer and they can type it in, hopefully they'll find your podcast and they'll definitely This is such a hopeful story. They'll definitely feel inspired by your story and it will give them a sense that there is some hope to be had because I think that's the thing that's so scariest, don't you? Just not knowing. Yeah, exactly. When you're waiting for the organs, you never know when they're coming, if they're coming, how you're going to feel the next day or the week after. So it's scary being in the dark, basically. So to know that other people have been through the same kind of situation that you have makes it seem a little bit less scary. It sheds some light on the situation. So I don't have many friends who have had multiple organ transplants. I only know a couple of people who have. 
I have a lot more friends who have just had a heart transplant. And I know for those people that they have to go through annual testing, a biopsy usually to make sure that the organ is not being rejected. Do you have to have biopsies of all of your organs? So I don't typically have biopsies of all of the organs. They do the intestines biopsies once a year just to check because they're the hardest to detect any changes in those organs. For the liver, uh, they can just monitor blood work. For the stomach, there's a very much lower risk of rejection with the stomach, and it's something that would be pretty obvious right away with regard to my eating. But with the intestines, it's a little bit harder to see what's going on there, which is why most people who have colon cancer, for example, have colonoscopies every couple of years, just because it's a harder area to monitor. But aside from those biopsies, it's not there's not a whole lot of monitoring aside from regular routine blood work and, and yearly checkups just to make sure everything is on track. And didn't we say that you also had a pancreas transplant? Yeah, so that's kind of interesting. It wasn't a true transplant as such. They just left mine where it was and they added in, it kind of came along with the donor's organs. So I, in fact, have two pancreases, which is somewhat interesting, I suppose. Um <laughs> Yeah, that is kind of interesting, Daryl. <laughs> and part of the reason I had to take your spleen out to give you some more room. <laughs> exactly. The pancreas organs. is a pretty small organ. But yeah, I've got two and they're just sitting there plugging along. Wow. Okay, so for people who don't know anything about transplants, many people think that when you get a transplant, you're fixed and everything is fine, kind of like the bionic man. And you're probably too young to remember the bionic man. But when I was a kid, the bionic man was a TV show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, I'm familiar you, with it. I've never seen you? it, but okay. I'm familiar with it. <laughs> Lee Majors, he was the bionic man. And then later there was a bionic woman. But anyway, what would you tell somebody who's waiting for an organ or multiple organs about what they can expect? So I think the most important thing while waiting for a transplant is to stay hopeful. I definitely spent a lot of time being sick and a long time waiting for a transplant. But I never really lost hope and never gave up. I think if you reach a point where you give up hope, your body can kind of sense that and your health will decline rapidly. And even though after the transplant, there was still a long road to full recovery, maintaining that hope throughout the process really helped. And after the transplant, it's not like you're immediately 100% and everything is peachy. The medications that you have to take to prevent the organ rejection do weaken the immune system and make you more susceptible to all kinds of infections. It's very important to do everything you can to stay healthy and maintain your strength, both mentally and physically. Oh, I think that's excellent advice because, yeah, you do need that hope, but hope alone is not going to make it work. You do have to put the effort in there, make sure you take your medications regularly. How many medications do you take a day? At this point, I'm actually only taking two, one an anti-rejection medication and the other just to help control stomach acid. But immediately after the transplant, I was probably on 14 medications a day. Wow. But there again, that's a message of hope that even if you start out with a lot of medications and a strict schedule for your medications, that eventually it can get better. Exactly. Yeah. Initially, obviously, there's a lot more going on and it It seems overwhelming, but Mm -hmm. you just have to trust the process, trust the doctors, and eventually things do improve. And like I say, I've returned to as much of a normal life as I've ever had in my entire life. 
That's amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Daryl, and for sharing your experience with us. This is just amazing. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been really great. Well, great. That does conclude this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today, my friends. Find us on iTunes and subscribe. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna, with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time.